Um, welcome, everybody. This is the CTS Nets uh, book club on Leadership Book Club. Uh, and uh, with me, I have a panel of uh, three cardiothoracic surgeons and or surgeons in training. Uh, they're going to help me discuss the first book in our series, which is by Amy Edmondson uh, called Teaming. Uh, so just to get started, I'm Mara Vaporjan. I'm a thoracic surgeon down in Texas uh, at the MD Anderson, um, and uh, I'm a professor of surgery. I've been in practice for about 23 years uh, and heavily involved in leadership training down here, and this is sort of an interest of mine, sort of dovetails with my educational interest. Also with us, uh, we have uh, Kim Holst, uh, Dr. Jenna Romano, and Dr. Vinantharani. Dr. Holst, can you just introduce yourself to the group? Yep, thank you so much for having me. So I'm Kim Hulse, I'm a PGY6 in the uh, 4 plus 3 uh, integrated cardiothoracic training program at Mayo Clinic. I'm focused in adult cardiac um, and have just had the opportunity also to join the STS board. So very much excited about discussing this book. Great. Dr. Romano? Hi again, thank you so much for uh, the invitation as well. Uh, my name is Jenna Romano. I'm a pediatric cardiac surgeon at the University of Michigan. Um, and obviously within the well realm of congenital heart surgery, we have a lot of integrated teams that work, I think actually quite well together. Um, and so I actually lead our cardiac ICU as well as have several leadership roles in the operating room, both areas that are really integrated with our teams. Wonderful. And then Dr. Thorani. Great, I'm uh, Vino Thorani. I'm the Marcus uh, Chief of Cardiovascular Surgery for Piedmont um, Healthcare in Atlanta, Georgia, and also the Marcus Heart and Vascular Center and the, um, the uh, Marcus Valve Center. So um, I have um, not only institu institutional um, leadership positions, but also on a national level, I'm the current president of the Southern Thoracic Surgical Association uh, and also the president of the Heart Valve Society. Um, I've served on the board of the STS and I'm currently the treasurer-elect um, for the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thanks, Eric. So just to lay the groundwork, I'm going to sort of start diving into the book, and then I was going to ask the panel to comment on the sections. Dr. Edmondson's book uh, came out a number of years ago. She's followed it up with another one as well, The Fearless Organization. But I think this one really has a lot of emphasis on medicine in general. Uh, a lot of her examples at the very beginning of the book start with examples of failures of teaming and medicine and the enormous impact that can have. She also studies many other industries, but keeps circling back to medicine where she did a lot of her research on this. One of the first things she discusses in the book is the fact that our industries across the United States are moving more to knowledge-based industries. We still are a, a merchandising and a production line sort of industries, but you know we know that that is actually becoming a smaller and smaller component of what we do in, in business. And obviously what we do, the, the four of us in medicine, is a huge knowledge business with an influx of technology, but obviously enormously a knowledge business. And she lays it out at the beginning by saying that knowledge can come really across a spectrum, that the easiest knowledge uh, is sort of routine operations. These are things that are done over and over and over again. They have a very clear process. Checking a patient into a clinic is a routine operation. There are clear things that have to be done, insurance that has to be checked, et cetera. On the other end of that spectrum is innovative operations. These are things where you're totally making up new ground. You're exploring something new. Nobody understands how this is supposed to work. It's essentially what we do in the laboratory uh, or in the clinical laboratory. 
And in the middle, which is where the majority of medicine lives, is complex operations. Uh, and, and these are the things where, yeah, there are some processes in place, but there are so many intangibles that can change what's going to happen that uh, at the matter of minutes, you could enter the realm of innovative operations or move into routine operations. So I was going to stop there and sort of talk with the team about examples of all three of those that may have experienced. Uh, I was going to start with you, Kim. Uh, at a trainee level, there may be a few things that are routine still that, that you know about and could talk about, uh, but maybe give an example where teaming helped in, uh, on that end of the spectrum. And then we'll go to the other two members as well. Oh, great. Thank you. So um, at Mayo, we have a pretty well-oiled machine in terms of our preoperative getting patients set up for a clinic, making sure that they have all the tests that they need when they come in, and then really getting them lined up nicely for proceeding to the operating room when they come to the OR, uh, when they call in at night to check into the operating room. All of these things are kind of streamlined. When we get involved as trainees, I think is when things go haywire a little bit from there, and then you really begin to appreciate the routine operations that maybe you don't get exposed to on a daily basis uh, because they're, they're, they're progressing so smoothly. Um, and when things are borderlining between the routine and the complex, um, I think is when trainees get involved or when, when a test doesn't come back as expected and you need to kind of pivot um, and make a, you know, make a more a medically guided decision for a patient based on the new information. Thanks, Ken. Uh, Jenna, Vino, any comments on yeah, those you know, sorts I think of spectrums? I think that, you know, it's one of those things that depending on where you are in your training or life experience, as well as what um, area you're working in, the concept of what is routine versus not routine changes rapidly and continually through the day. Um, you know, I think about as, you know, training residents how to do an operation, there's the routine dance of getting on and off cardiopulmonary bypass. And there's several steps, you do them in order, but yet it's not a routine because you also have to be cognizant of all the potential pitfalls and where there could be potential for error and how you work as a team together to orchestrate that, but also learn from that experience. I know I certainly, from taking residents through cases, I'm constantly learning as you start speaking out loud why you're doing things or how you're thinking about things. Um, so, you know, the, and especially with, a, you know, the patient experience that's going from perhaps the preoperative evaluation setting where, you know, they're being seen by one group of providers and then you're in the operating room setting where you have a whole another team. And then that team transitions to the IC where you have yet another team, but yet each of those needs to work together seamlessly in terms of handoff of information, how to do that efficiently. And certainly we create all these tools, the briefs, the debriefs, the handoff tools that really help to have that be seamless, but also having the opportunity to speak up or understand where a process isn't working well. Um, I have a great example of that. It happened to me just last week of in an operating room, Residents cannulating for a case, all of a sudden, out of the blue, there's a block of air in the arterial cannula. The PA at the end of the table sees it, yells air, physically grabbed the cannula, bent it in half, and yelled pump off. And that's a powerful thing that a person in the second assist position felt completely comfortable doing that because it was the safest and it was the right thing to do. And the whole team, because we do drills for air, everybody immediately like, went right into the process. 
But then in the end, it wasn't about so much what went wrong, it was what went right, but also how do we learn from this experience? How do we get even better than we are today than we were five years ago with dealing with this? So, you know, I think it's, it's a constantly evolving process, but I think nowhere more than cardiac surgery is the concept of teaming more important um, because of the stakes in which we work with, as well as, you know, so many different teams that are at different phases of care. I think that's a great example. I want to circle back to that one when we talk about psychological safety, which she brings up as a cornerstone of teaming. Vino, any quick comments? Yeah, I think so. Uh, what I'll, I'll maybe give a different perspective, Ara, because I'm in a private practice group now, right, where it's not the same thing as residents. And having been at Emory for 27 years and Georgetown MedStar for two years and now at Piedmont, we don't have residents. But the challenge is in the importance of teams becomes critically important, I think. It's not just about resonance. That's where I would say that 95% of my, my um, thought processes were when I was in an academic center. It's now shifted, and most of America and the world are not practicing in an academic institution. So, but that team component becomes critically just as important. Um, and now yep. it concentrates on efficiencies and it concentrates on the nursing staff. And I like what Jenna said. It's also based on handoffs. That's really important how the team works and how it doesn't work. And I think a, a one place that's really important, and I'll just mention and we can talk a little bit about it, is ECMO, right? ECMO is making sure that everything is working in a very seamless situation becomes more and more important as we do more and more ECMO, having the counties in the right order and not, not in, switched around. So there's a lot of nuances um, that we can talk about a little bit more, but I think that I'll share some, you know, some examples in a private practice world, which are a little bit different than the academic world. Absolutely. But you did say something that I really caught on to because in the next chapters, uh, Dr. Edmondson really focuses on this as well. And, and she starts to go into detail about just what she means by teaming. And one of the key aspects she talks about is that she wants you to look at teaming as a verb, not as a noun. There are many teams in medicine and in business that don't practice teaming. Yep. They don't actually engage in teaming, right? Uh, they may be a team, uh, but they don't get there. Uh, and, you know, she sort of puts away some myths about teaming. Teaming is not kumbaya and we all get along. In fact, good teaming is going to engage in conflict. Uh, there has to be conflict because that's how you figure out what is and isn't working and you move forward. And, and sh once she goes over that uh, and the fact that there's going to be experimentation required and failure required, then moves into the meat of the book, which is leadership in teaming. How do leaders facilitate teaming? And I think what Dr. Romano spoke of uh, and what the, Dr. Thirani just spoke of, as well as what Dr. Hull spoke of, shows that a leader is very influential in allowing teams to perform appropriate teaming, right? If that psychological safety wasn't there uh, for the PA to immediately take an action and shut down a pump, then, then bad things would have happened to the patient, obviously. Uh, and the ability for a trainee to speak out and say, hey, this process wasn't followed, this patient isn't gonna make it to the OR properly, we forgot to check X, Y, and Z, that's also important, and even in a routine process. Um, so she actually begins to go on and spends a lot of time on this concept of psychological safety. And I think 
that's the next place I'd like us to talk about. I'm sure each of us growing up in surgery have experienced environments that were rich in psychological safety and without saying any names, maybe some environments that weren't the best examples of psychological safety. Uh, and and still without naming names, I, I'd love each of you, maybe we'll start this time uh, with Dr. Durrani on the other end and then work our way back around the circle. Uh, give me some examples where you truly saw a, a leader engage in activities that, that, that limited psychological safety and, and became a threat. You know? Yeah, I, th I think that's uh, ever more so now than ever before. I remember, as a, in fact, we were joking about in the OR last week of the way that our, you and I are a little bit older and the way that um, we were taught was very radically different than the way um, that Kim is currently taught. And it was a, um, it was more of a uh, environment where bullying was actually encouraged. Um, and the way that you were taught was by um, absolute embarrassment and bullying. And I think that led what I've now realized over 16 years of practice is that that's not very positive for the team. At the end of the, the day, the whole team disintegrates into that. And it's, it's, uh, it's led by fear more than an intimidation. And I think that is the pathway going forward that's no longer acceptable for any of us. And I will tell you that, you know, I've had two or three scenarios in all the institutions I've been at where a surgeon was um, actually let go of because of that reason is that it was so disruptive to the team. Um, I think that's become more important uh, to, to me over as I've learned over the last 16, 17 years that we have to move away from that and work towards as a team. Everybody has a voice on the team. And in our debrief and in our introductions, when we do in our cases every day, every single person in the room is called on and say, what could we have done better today than we, you know, to make this a better experience for the team and also how can we have helped the patient? So it's everybody, the perfusions, the first assistant, the second assistant, anesthesiologist, the tech. And I think that's what's important. And that's how the team should be led by example and by includes, uh, including, including everybody on the team. That's a great point. The idea of specifically asking for that input is something that Dr. Edmondson points out in the book quite frequently and says, as a leader, it's our job to engage in that differential opinion and gather that curiosity. That's the key element of a leader who wants to practice and engage in teaming. Remain curious. You want to learn. You want to learn from everybody. Dr. Romano, any comments in, in congenital? I imagine this is uh, is something that has uh, evolved over time. Well, you know, I certainly remember, again, when I was a trainee, things were a lot different. And I remember one of my first experiences as a medical student in a cardiac OR, uh, things went very poorly all of a sudden. And that particular surgeon's way of managing that was everybody got kicked out of the room except for the perfusionist, him, and the resident while he managed the problem <laughs> because he basically didn't want anybody else to see what happened. And, you know, I remember just being so baffled by that experience. I was like, it was so foreign to anything that I could imagine. And, you know, I sometimes I think in the congenital world, because, you know, we all deal with kids and it's just, I think in general, we have a culture that's much more inclusive, a little bit more touchy-feely soft. So it probably helps a little bit. But also um, very intimidating also, right? Because it's little kids. 
Yeah, well, yeah, is, yeah. obviously stakes are, but stakes are high everywhere. everywhere. Yep. Um, but I think, you know, the point that you make of, you know, it's really creating that environment takes work. It's not just saying this is a safe environment. So for example, when I'm operating, I will constantly be asking the first assistant or second, I'm like, so what, do you think this looks okay? Do you think this is good? Do you think this, you know, getting their feedback and, you know, I may be perfectly confident that, yeah, it's totally fine. Or like, I really can't really see. Can you see where I just put that stitch? But making them realize, like, I want to hear their voice. I want to hear what they have to say. And similarly, when you do have somebody speak up, like, for example, the scenario with the air embolism, you know, really going out of your way to acknowledge that, that was the absolute right thing to do. And thank you so much. And you just dramatically changed this two-year-old's life. And making that, because I think we also, we, we fail to take the time sometimes to acknowledge when people step up and say something or do something that's difficult. And we just kind of gloss over and we keep moving ahead. And I think it's really taking that time to pause and acknowledge this is an ideal way that our team is teaming, that we are functioning better together in this scenario. So, so Jim, it, it takes work and it's not the normal hierarchy of, especially in cardiac surgery where it feels like there's people at different levels and there's always been the view as the surgeon is the team leader. We kind and, of and are, that, but we're kind of not. Jen, Jenna, can I just say that also what I've been doing also is when you have positive reinforcement like that, I actually tell that person's boss. And so what that also does is that gives even, it, because in that room you're with that person, but if you tell their boss and their boss says, hey, I heard what you did, that was a great job. And so I think that gives them a second layer of team that this is a person that's really not only talking to me, but they're talking about my, about my, to my boss about how well I've done. So I think that also helps, by the way. Absolutely. And, and before I go to Kim, I, uh, Dr. Holst, I just wanted to also say that you just pointed out the next two things that Dr. Edmondson says in the book, which is as a leader, your responsibility is to remain curious and, and make it clear that you don't have all the answers. The old model of leadership was the leader had all the answers and everybody else followed them. The new model of leadership, which embraces teaming in a knowledge environment and knowledge business is no, the, uh, you can't have all the answers. And if you make that assumption that you do, you will fail yeah. or you will get beat. That's for sure. And then the other one is to call out when somebody does speak out and encourage that safety as both you and Dr. Thelani said, yeah, you, you have to make them understand that because as she says in the book, most people fear being seen as ignorant, incompetent, negative, or disruptive whenever they open their mouth. That's the four things they're assuming when they go to work. And with that introduction, Let's go to Dr. Holst, who hopefully will bring yeah. us around and tell us that all has been solved and uh, that teaming is rife in the medical field. <laughs> uh, as a, it sounds like things, I mean, have definitely improved and changed a lot from when uh, you all have trained compared to now. I think that there is still, from a training perspective, of course, medicine is a hierarchy, and so, even though some teams have leveled that out, um, that's not universal. And I think that your uh, you're touching on the concern of being um, viewed as incompetent and ignorant is still a pretty large concern, you know, concern of most yeah. trainees. Um, so I think really for trainees to, to find the right time to ask these questions, and that might not be when the, the cross clamp is on, um, you know, but it's paying attention to the echo, paying attention to what your staff 
did in the case and then talking about it after the case when the patient's you know, has successfully separated from bypass uh, is something that I've found to be to be a, a better approach. Um, and it's things are a little bit, you know, safer when you're outside of the operating room. Uh, some things, you know, of course, will be asked in the OR. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to touch on is um, one of my favorite quotes from the book is that she said, you know, the most important influence on psychological safety is the nearest manager or, or leader. And I think as residents, we have a great opportunity to do that when, you know, our consultant, our staff is out of the room. There's other members of the team that even if there's a, a debriefing or if there's what have you, they're going to be more comfortable talking to you as a trainee. Um, they don't see you as intimidating and using that opportunity to really hone in on your leadership skills and then also, you know, bring some of those things back to your attendings, to your consultants to further improve the process. Those are outstanding points and they do fall on, there are many opportunities for a trainee to be in a position to lead. Uh, obviously, if they're faculty uh, exemplifies and, and shows the way of how psychological safety can be, it makes it easier. But I've seen many trainees, unfortunately, who have different examples of leadership and, and have embarked on, unfortunately, a non-psychologically safe environment. But I think the opportunity, like you said, especially when the staff leaves the room or on morning report, when you have your APPs and the charge nurse around and many opportunities and the medical students around to exemplify that safety. And Clearly, we can't see everything about the patient. We're all so busy that you have to rely on that person speaking out and saying, hey, I, I didn't see an antibiotic ordered on that patient. I know we said we started antibiotics, but great. Yeah, let's go look at the chart and make sure it was ordered, right? Can I just say, we, can I just say one thing? Can I just yeah. say one thing that Kim said? I think is important is that sometimes it's not in the heat of the moment. It's not time to have these type of discussions. And I, and I want to bring that out as a very important, I think, leadership and team building is that sometimes when the patient's left or everybody's calmed down or your chest is closed is the time to have those discussions of saying, hey, this is what I think we could have done better and maybe call on people and say, what do you think? And so I, I just want to mention that, Kim, I, I didn't want anybody to miss that because she said that, and I think that's very important. Sometimes it's better to do it, it all maybe after the case in a hallway, but not together as a big group if it's going to be something that's heated. So just one point that I thought Kim made, that was great. Thank you. And no, thanks. You know, for I was just going to say, you know, that we're definitely seeing in the younger generations, I think the concept of teaming, of working together as an integrated unit, because that's how everything has gone in terms of teaming from a research perspective, teaming from working on projects, from patient care. It's a much different process. And I think really they're helping you know, the mid-level and senior people that may have seen or imprinted in a different model during their training, kind of how to integrate this into the day-to-day -day and how, you know, teams can function so much better in this type of format. Absolutely. I think it's inherent upon us as educators and in the private community, right, uh, Vino, to, to educate and always lead the way and, right. and show how this is done. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. So 100%. we got about eight minutes left. And so I'm going to wrap up the book really quick on the last few chapters and then ask for a couple of closing comments on it. Um, the rest of the book is really focused on failure. Um, and she goes a lot into failure. And failure is obviously something that we fear in day-to-day -day medical practice. But 
But there are types of failure that she describes, which I thought was wonderful. She talks about preventable failures, complex failures, and intelligence failures. Um, preventable failures are the only one that are considered bad. And I love the example she gives in the book where she's talking to CEOs and managers, and she says, you know, how many preventable failures do you think you see, you know, of the, all the failures? And they're usually like only about three or 4% of them are truly preventable, right? And then he goes, how many of them do you act like we're preventable? And they go, oh, about 80 or 90% of them, might we treat people that way? Which destroys that, that safe feeling to bring up a mistake and say, I didn't do that, or I forgot to do that, or that didn't get done, or any of these things. So she spends a lot of time focusing on the need to classify failures. And our goal is to generate intelligent failures, right? Which we learn from and improve the process. And she moves from that uh, on how leaders should be engaged in detecting that, which we've already talked about a little bit, like what, what went wrong, like uh, Vina was saying and Kim was saying, so we can look at that later and think about it and debrief. And then the last thing she spends a little time on the last section is really this concept of building in that failure, that learning as part of execution. In the old business model, the leader would develop the process, spit it out, and the job of the employee was to do the process. And any deviation from the process was seen as failure. Now, the idea is different. That execution phase becomes the learning phase. And I was hoping that we could close out by a few of you giving examples of maybe times where you've seen that teaming process lead to real tangible benefits truly come around. And I'm going to let uh, Dr. Romano go first on this one. Yeah, well, I'll try to summarize it briefly, but, you know, as an entire congenital heart center, we uh, had looked at some recent outcomes and we weren't really happy. And instead of focusing on why is this happening, we took a whole other approach and we now have this thing called the North Star, and it's very simple, you know, it's your true North to be, to provide the best high quality care possible and kind of having that, I know Mayo Clinic has that, you know, patients first, like yeah. keeping it really clean and simple, like having that focal point, which takes away from worrying about who did what or what failed. And basically by creating these groups across preoperative, intraoperative, postoperative settings, which are, have individuals from multiple different disciplines that are part of them. And we look at everything in terms of a process. So something may come up as something happened or didn't go the way we would like it to, but instead of, yes, we want to make sure, is this preventable? Is there some root cause analysis we need to do? But quickly partition that off and then how can we look at this from a process standpoint? What can we do better? Like, how can we think of this differently? And constantly looking at, you know, it gets so much away from what happened and who did it to, okay, Let's figure that out. But more importantly, let's look at the process. What's the process behind this event and how, let's look at it critically. Are there ways that we can make this better? It may not even be related to the problem that occurred, but just gives you a chance to look at it. It has been incredible from a teaming perspective for our congenital heart center. Everybody is on board with the North Star. Like it just gives us all this different vantage point of really how we look at day-to-day -day care that we provide. It's been tremendous. So I, I, you did it again. You pointed out one of the clear roles of the leader that Dr. Edmondson points out, which is articulating a clear goal. 
that is easy for everybody to wrap their head around. One of the examples she gives at the very beginning of the book is, is a patient supposed to get a CAT scan ordered by the surgeon. And it never gets done. He orders it on Friday. And through a comedy of errors, it doesn't get done until Monday afternoon. But when you dig into it, each person did their job flawlessly. Each individual who touched that patient had a specific job to do. They got it done. The problem is they weren't aligned on the goal, which was to get a CAT scan, right? That was the goal. And North Star is that goal. And everybody doesn't get defensive when they look at that goal, right? They say, yeah, that's the goal. That's what we're going to line up on. Uh, Dr. Holst, comments? And then we'll close with Dr. Thelani. Yeah, um, the example that comes to mind for me is um, is our eCPR and ECMO activations. We've been increasing these in the emergency department um, and in the cath lab quite a bit. And you know, when things, it's just it's a very different situation than when um, you go on pump or transition to ECMO. Of course, in the operating room, so it's it's you're in an environment out of your control. You're with people that you don't recognize. All of these things, and we've been able to have a really great um, amount of communication and collaboration between um, our surgical team and, and the residents, particularly with our critical care consultants who do, who uh, really run our, our ECMO service. And then um, one of our, you know, the early examples, um, you know, it's cannulation time. And when we really optimize cannulation time, then we move to the next thing. How do we get LV vents in? And what's the fast, most facile way to do this? And what's option A, B, and C for valuable or for different patients. So it really, um, it's been a really great opportunity for me to, you know, leverage the different, um, the different amounts of knowledge that different, you know, different specialties have, and then use it as cardiac surgeons. I think we're in a very unique position and that we follow patients all the way through their hospitalization from, you know, in this situation, from the emergency department to when they get cannulated to the cath lab, to the OR if they need to, and then in their recovery afterwards. So we have a really unique opportunity to kind of tie in all the different uh, funds of knowledge and, and do that to the benefit of the patient, which has been really fantastic. That's a great learning opportunity. Vino, you want to close us out and then I'll yeah. say a few words. Our, uh, two things really come to mind for me. One is something that's um, present in all surgical specialties, M&M, Morbidity and Mortality Conference. And that is a place uh, that I believe that teaming can really come together if done right. I've seen so many opportunities <laughs> where I've seen the surgeon, we're the, we're the quarterback, we're the leader of the team. And the patient goes south and that surgeon says it was a nurse's fault, it was an intensivist fault, it was a perfusionist fault, it was a resident's fault, it was everybody except my fault. I think that's an opportunity that we really need to hark on. And this is a this is uh, just a suggestion to those who are watching. As a quarterback, you have to say, guys, what can we? Let me start off by telling you what I should have done better, and then work from that. That's an M and M thing, and so I think that's something. That's an advice that I'd like to give out to those watching. Is if you're going to be a leader, a simple place to start it is your M and M conference on your patient. And I want to just say, I'll close with saying what Jenna did. Um, uh, we also had some issues when when I came. Um, for um, some of the valve stuff that we were doing here on the transcatheter side. And we, everybody's doing a great job, but we didn't have a team effort. And we were able to reduce our mortality by fivefold in 18 months, which I've never been able to do before. Fivefold decrease uh, in 18 months. 
because we decided as a team, everybody in the team, from the cath lab to the OR, surgeons, cardiologists, the CT imagers, the, the echo, we sat in a room and said, let's figure out how to do it together. And I've never seen a group of people come together so beautifully. And at the end of the day, we're all proud of our work. And I think that's a great success story to, to end on, Ara. Absolutely. That's a classic example of bringing it together. Well, I want to thank the panel. I, I think it's a marvelous book. I would encourage everybody to pick it up and read it. As you hear from our panel, it's inherent in everything that we do as cardiothoracic surgeons. It's hard to think. I, I didn't give any examples. I'm sorry, but it's rife with multidisciplinary care and thoracic oncology, obviously, yeah. So, uh, and clearly in education as well. So, uh, but I'd encourage you all to read the book. I want to thank all my panelists who came on for the call, and uh, uh, hopefully we can uh, do this again sometime. Great. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Our-